This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Please remain standing. Let's hear the word of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, 8-12. through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of our Lord. Let's seek his grace. Father in heaven, show us Christ. Show us the sufficiency of his life and sufferings and resurrection to help us, Lord, live and walk in your ways. Heal our hearts, give strength, illumine our minds, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. How does a vulnerable minority survive in a society that's treating them with hostility? Remember, that's who Peter's writing to, a minority group of young Christians facing hostility. How does a group like that survive? Well, retaliation is the answer of many, right? It's the way of the world. Uh, whether we see it in uh, news reports, a uh, young man that goes back to high school because he was offended and killed somebody, or whether we see it on social media, somebody posts one thing and then here comes all the attacks and back and forth and it goes, or whether we see it depicted in films, you know, repaying evil with evil, that's the way of the world, right? Get even, even a tit for tat, and, and so forth. And part of it is really instinctive. You know, our natural tendency is to respond in the way we've been treated. And one reason is that it it can appeal to our sense of fairness. You know, and and, and that can be a very powerful instinct, whether it's right or wrong in that given situation. How many times I could tell you I've watched a film, and in that film, somebody's being treated unjustly, and it's just, it's just this severe example of unjust suffering, and before I know it, my shoulders are tense, and my hands are clenched, and I'm like, calm down, this is entertainment, right? This is not real, and I was like, whoa, I just get upset, you know, so part of it is an instinct, you know, our sense of fairness, but... We need to recognize as Christians that reacting on the basis 
of instinct alone to the point of seeking tit for tat or revenge. That's not one of our options. <laughs> it's entering a battlefield. It's taking, it's taking a bad circumstance and turning it into a two-way conflict now. It wasn't a conflict yet. It was simply unjust suffering, and it's, it's on you to respond in a certain way now at this point. And so that's just not one of our options, beloved. And this happens, of course, in, in marriages. It happens in families. It happens in churches. And it happens in other relationships, such as our relationship with outsiders. But um, we're told in Scripture that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That is, it's not against the people. It's against forces, evil, the, the influence, the power of evil that is in this world and dominating that individual. So we're told our struggle's not against flesh and blood, right? And, and we're told that we do not overcome evil with evil. Uh, we overcome evil's power towards us, trying to get us to react wrongly. We overcome evil with good. And we're set free from what evil wants to do with us. And so we mentioned last week where this can lead us and where Peter's led us to see is that seeing someone come to faith in Christ is a greater cause than demanding our own personal justice. And that's a, that's a choice we make at certain points in, in our lives. So again, how should we, how should we as the people of God Respond to unjust treatment. Well, that's what Peter's been explaining since chapter 2, verse 11. He says, uh, live honorable lives, show honor to everyone, submit to authority. He applied it to those three relationships, ending with wives and husbands. And now, in verse 8, he returns to the broad, universal principle. Notice how he begins verse 8. Finally, all of you. So he's not talking husbands, wives, or servants. He's about all of you. Here's, I'm back to my main point, he says. Finally, all of you. And he addresses all of us as Christians. And what he teaches us here is simply summed up this way. This is what he is communicating. Living as the people of God in a hostile world calls for two things. It calls for spiritual qualities in our relationships with one another, the church. And it calls for blessing, blessing in response to evil. That's what he's teaching us here. Uh, living as the people of God in a hostile world, surviving in this world that presses against the church requires, first of all, that we get along <laughs> in the huddle. Spiritual qualities in our relationships, and it also requires us to respond correctly to the world with blessing instead of cursing and so forth. And so verse 8, he lists those five spiritual qualities for the church. In verse 9, he's, he, he, he explains the response to outsiders. And then in verses 10 through 12, he provides support for what he's saying from Scripture, from the Old Testament, from Psalm 34. So we're going to look at these things now. Together Now, before we do, I want to stress this point at the beginning, as time to time we do, and I feel it necessary to do it, 
And that is to point out that these qualities, these spiritual virtues that he has in verse 8, and this conduct towards the world, um, these qualities and, these, and this conduct is the result of a new life in you. It's the result of having the Spirit of God indwell you. A Christian is someone who's been healed by the cross, he told us, set free from bondage to sin, alive to God, alive to righteousness, and a Christian is one who's in the process of being transformed throughout his or her life. You see, true conversion, genuine conversion, becoming a, a, a Christian by the grace of God produces radically altered relationships. First of all, vertically with God. When you become a Christian, God, the holy God, the living God, judge of the world, is now at peace with you, and you are at peace with him, and he is now your heavenly father. That's the result of the cross, and you being becoming a Christian. And it also results in changes in our relationships horizontally with one another. Now, we are what? Brothers and sisters. A brotherhood. Members of an eternal family with people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, it seems. And so these things that he's talking about are, are the fruit of this new relationships with each other and with God. They're not the root. So when Peter says what he's saying, you need to always hear it as a Christian, if you are a Christian, through the lens of the grace of God. He's not saying pursue these qualities that God may forgive you, receive you, and so forth. He's telling, he's writing to people who have been redeemed. And he says, this is essential for you to survive the hostility of the world, is to keep manifesting these graces and these virtues through the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and so forth. So have that clear <clears throat> in your mind. These qualities are the fruit of a genuine uh, relationship with God. They're not the root. So let's see what he says about relating to one another. He lists these five qualities. He says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Uh, D. Edmund Hebert, in his commentary, says, this is an ideal portrait of the church. Emphasis for me on ideal. <laughs> ideal portrait. Why is it an ideal portrait? Because we never fully arrive at this. We never come to a place in our Christian walks with, God, with, with, with the Lord that we can say, I am fully characterized by these five virtues, including humility. <laughs> no. And neither can the church, but nevertheless, beloved, we should strive for these virtues. We should seek them. You see, these five qualities, these five virtues are aspects of our personalities that are in need of constant renovation, constant renewal both individually and corporately now if we look at this list and we admit we don't arrive at these things and we're walking with christ we seek them is there anything special about the list or is it just a random order and and i would submit to you that uh, as many new testament cost scholars point out that there is a, a structure here that that is peter uses a literary advice known as a chiasm in a chiasm, if you 
would imagine if you look at a, you would see a greater than sign or a, uh, a, a, a V turned sideways. And the emphasis in this, in, this, in this literary device is where the point is, that where that middle concept or that missile, middle word is placed. That's the emphasis. I think that's what Peter's doing here. And the other uh, items in the list have some correspondence. So if you look at the first and the last, they both involve the mind. He says, have unity of mind, and at the end, a humble mind. So there's some correspondence here, a mindset. And then the second and the fourth have to do with the capacity to feel for others, sympathy and a tender heart. And then in the middle, you have what? Brotherly love. Brotherly love. And if you have an outline, you see I basically structured it that way for you so you can see it visually. So the emphasis here is on brotherly love. It's not new for Peter. He's already spoken about it. But let's look at these. Let's look at that first couplet. First of all, unity mind and then humble mind. Have a humble mind. The word unity and applied to mind, unity of mind is speaking of a harmony. Let there be a harmony among you. Paul says in Romans 12, 16, live in harmony. Walk together in harmony. He's speaking here of a spiritual harmony, a harmony of our views regarding God and regarding scripture and so forth. It's a like-mindedness. It's not a, it's not a unity that is uniformity, where everyone has to look the same, dress the same, walk the same, eat the same. That's called a cult, <laughs> okay? This is a unity where there's a harmony that still rejoices in the diversity that is present in there, you see. Uh, so it's a unity of different people, a unity of mind regarding the essential core doctrines of the faith and regarding our purpose, our mission here on earth and philosophy, how we carry this out and so forth. We will not all agree on every detail. That's just a given. But let there be one mind about the essentials and the things we're doing together. It's the, di it's the type of unity and diversity that's been depicted or illustrated many times before in a symphony. In a symphony, in an orchestra, not everyone is playing a violin. <laughs> not everyone is playing, you know, uh, uh, some other uh, trumpet or some other horn instrument. Not everyone is playing, as I said, first hour, the little bells. Thank God, not everyone's playing the little bells, you know. Everyone is doing what? Every, everyone is playing whatever instrument's given them, their role. Not all of them are playing the exact same notes at the same time. There's harmony going on. But everyone's playing off the same score, the same song, and everyone's playing under the direction of one director. You see. And for us, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he directs us through his word, through his truth. And so what, what Peter is saying, let there be this harmony regarding the essentials in the church and then the other corresponding part of the couplets, the last one, have a humble mind because to have harmony of thinking, you need humility. You need to have a humble mind. Uh, you need to be able to come to a point where you say, on that matter, my opinion is not the most important thing to me, you know. And so I can walk with you and I can live with you. I can fellowship with you here. To, to, uh, 
a humble mind is the opposite of haughtiness, of looking down on others, looking down upon their opinions and so forth. But humility is, is not, it's not um, thinking negatively of yourself uh, either. What is humility then? It's not thinking of yourself. It's, it's self-forgetfulness, in other words. It's thinking of others first, placing others first ahead of yourself. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 when he writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, I long to see and hear that you're striving together with one mind. You're striving for the gospel, striving for the truth. And then later on, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There it is. That's the first one, unity of mind, having the same love. We'll love the same things, the love the things God loves and hate the things that God hates. And then he goes on to say, being in full accord and of one mind, that's all, the unity of mind. Then verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's the humility of mind, is self-forgetfulness. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so it begins here. He says, all of you, we want to survive in this hostile world. Let us have a unity of mind that flows from a humble mind. And then he moves, let's move to that second couplet. Sympathy and a tender heart. Now he's moving to those uh, virtues that involve our capacity to care about others. Our capacity to feel for them and care ab- for, about them and act. The, the root of the word sympathy is to suffer with. Interesting. To suffer with. To come alongside and suffer with those who are suffering. To share to, that sense of what they are experiencing in their life. To seek to understand them. And Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, 15. And, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that's what Peter's talking about here. And this week alone, I rejoice, I rejoice with the young shellnut because a little baby girl was born. Praise the Lord. And I weep with those who weep, Bill, because of the loss of your mother. And we communicated about that. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, you see, that's the sympathy that he's talking about. And sympathy, then, is not just what you feel, but how you express it. And it's about what you do, not just what you think about it. It's not you at home saying, oh, I just feel so bad for her. Now, let me go on with my life, you know. <laughs> oh, that's too bad over there. It's, remember, it's coming alongside, and let me, let me get my shoulder underneath your burden with you. Let me share that with you, you see. Let me share the pain, the load, the difficulty. And there's the sympathy. Uh, and then there's the tender heart. And the tender heart is the opposite of a hard heart. And what's a hard heart? A hard heart is a heart that just doesn't give a rip what's happening to people. <laughs> you just don't care, you know. Well, that, that's it. That's, I, I told them, you know. That's the result of their own stupidity. Let them walk in that. They made the bed. Let them sleep in it. You see, there's, that's a hard heart. But the tender heart, and the word means to feel in your gut what people, uh, what people need. The word is translated compassion. 
And it's used that way of Jesus in the Gospels. It says he felt compassion. He was troubled when he saw people and their weakness and their hurting and their suffering. But he didn't just feel and say, I'll throw up a quick one for you. When, P- when P- Jesus felt compassion, what did he do? He fed them when they were hungry. When he felt compassion, he taught them because they were sheep without a shepherd. When he felt compassion for some, he healed them from their sufferings in life and so forth. And so that's what Peter is speaking of here. It's an affectionate sensitivity towards the experiences of others that moves you to take action and come alongside, put your shoulder in there alongside of theirs and let's walk with them, you see. Let me express my sympathy, express your compassion and so forth. So may you, as a church, may we continue to grow in that way. I praise God for the many of you that serve that way. You, You take meals to to the hungry, you visit others and so forth and you call on those who are missing and so forth, but we need to excel still more, you see. And then in the middle, he has what? Brotherly love. That's the middle of this chiastic structure. So that is his great emphasis. And isn't it, isn't brotherly love, the love of family, the love that's an exchange between brothers and sisters, others who share the same grace of God, who've been saved from the cross, isn't that throughout the New Testament lifted up as the greatest Christian virtue? Absolutely it is. In many places it's lifted up as the, as the epitome, the capstone of a, of a Christian virtue. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the love chapter. What does Paul say at the end? He says, faith, hope, love. Wow, the holy trinity of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love, these abide. But the greatest of these is what? It is love. In Colossians chapter 3, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, and gentleness, right? Bearing with one another. If anyone has offended you, you forgive them as Christ forgave you. And then he says, but beyond all this, above all, put on love. Put on love, which ties together, binds together all these virtues in perfect harmony again. Keeps the symphony together without a violinist running out of the door or, or some other instrument leaving. Love keeps the symphony playing together. And this is a love that Scripture says, and this is very important, brotherly love, meaning a love of, the, of other Christians, even though their background is different, even though you would probably never have befriended them outside the fact that they are under the cross of Jesus just like you. Brotherly love, the capacity to feel and act in love for others is a mark. It is a sign of genuine Christian faith. It is a sign of a true conversion that a miracle has taken place in your heart you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the God's beloved son it's 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 understood that way in the new testament in John 13 35 uh, you we know that what Jesus said there was that by this by this this love your love for one another by this will all men know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another and again, it's John who writes in 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, 14, he says this, and it's just absolutely clear. Listen to it with me very carefully. He says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Stop there. 
Can we know that we, are, that we possess eternal life? Can we know that we are alive to God? Can we know that my conversion wasn't just something I mocked up, but it was real, it's God coming into my heart? Can we know, he says, we know, yes. And later he'll say, these things I've written to you who believe in the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So yes, we can know, and God wants us to know, know what? That we aren't fakers, that we have passed out of death, meaning a condition of spiritual death where we have no love for the true God and no love for other Christians, where what we love is sin. He goes, we know that we've passed out of death to life. How? Wow, what a statement. Because we love the brothers. (laughs) That's how we know. Because it's not all talk. But there is genuine love going on between people in the body of Christ that are so different. And as I pointed out last week, imagine that, huh? When you have slaves and masters going to the same church and, and maybe one of the, the slaves is an elder in the church and so forth. And just unbelievable, you see. The, the, the first century church was a bringing together of all sorts of social strata that was just unknown to the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world. By this we know that we've passed out of death for life because we love the brothers, and then he slams the door shut when he says, whoever does not love abides in death. You are still in the condition of being spiritually dead. So, beloved, I say that, and I say that to all of you because I don't know all of you. You know your hearts before God, but love for brethren is not some sort of optional Christmas card kind of thing. It is the fruit, again, the fruit of new life that's in you. May God help us excel still more in this love for brothers and sisters. And again, Peter has stressed this throughout his letter in chapter 1, verse 22. He said this was part of the reason for your conversion. In, in chapter 1, uh, verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, we need that to survive. Sometimes when the culture heat comes on, we're in a foxhole. And in that foxhole, to use a military analogy, we got to get along. <laughs> we can't be shooting each other. We have to excel in brotherly love. That's why Peter writes what he's writing here. He wants them to excel in it. It's not hard to imagine, is it? It's not hard to imagine that when the heat comes from the outside on a group of people, when pressure comes from the outside on a group of people, that, that we can, things can start breaking down and you start pointing fingers at others in the group, you know? That was your decision, man, <laughs> If you hadn't said this, you hadn't done, you know, and, and it starts breaking down. Why? Because the things that you love most are being threatened by the pressure from outside. You know, I don't have to imagine this. This happens in families all the time. And I don't have to reach into some far memory. I told the folks in first hour, all I have to do is replay the video from 2020. <laughs> And not that I want to replay it. I don't. I'm telling you, that's where I would have to look for an example. That's the only place I can turn immediately and say that's what some of us did to each other. There's no room for that, Peter says. You want to live in a hostile world, the world coming at you? These five qualities need to be being renovated and growing and expressed in the foxhole together, right? 
And so there it is, relating to one another. And then relating to the world, I believe it's verse 9. Now what he says in verse 9 can obviously apply to any relationship and even to another brother or sister. And of course, we've had to do that with other brothers or sisters. But I think Paul, Peter's main point here is, is the response to the world. Verse 8, to one another. And then verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now, of course, we have to do that at times with brothers and sisters, sometimes with our own spouses, sometimes with close friends who are Christians. But what Peter's getting at throughout this letter, especially since chapter 2, verse 11, is suffering unjustly in relation to the hostile world. And you heard in there, there's something we must not do, and there's something we must do. What we must not do is respond in the same way that we've been treated, right? We must not do that. Uh, Revenge, retribution, getting even, making sure he or she gets hers or his, all of that, these are not options for you, believers. People have and, and, and will do malicious things and say malicious things, harmful things, accuse you of things, and uh, persecute you just as they did Jesus. But we've already seen, he says, you've been called to this, to walk in his footsteps, because he left us an example. So reciprocating is not an option. So that's something we must not do. But there's also something we must do, and it's not passive, it's not withdrawal. (laughs) You know, it's not grin and bear it, it's not zip your lip and walk away. Sometimes we do walk away from a conflict, we don't want things to get worse. But listen to what he says, he says, on the contrary, bless. You have got to be kidding me, Peter. (laughs) Are you serious? It's hard enough for me to get to the I won't react, (laughs) tit for tat. But what I want to do is just walk away and just burn on the inside, you know, until I can get over this. And he says, no, you bless. (laughs) Bless, yes. What does it mean to bless? The the, the term in the the original Greek here is eulogeo, from which you hear eulogy. To bless is to speak well of someone or speak well to someone, as in a eulogy. And so we are to bless those who curse, those who slander us. And Peter is repeating the ethics of Jesus. Uh, In Luke 6.28, it says the words of Jesus, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. In Matthew 5.44, again, the words of our Lord, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, what, what does that mean? What, 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 what would that look like? What does it mean? What does it look like to bless those who curse? To bless those who harm? That that's my response. Well, to bless can come in many forms. The emphasis here on words, because the term means to, again, speak well to or speak well of. But one way that you could bless is what, they, what Jesus himself immediately said. Bless those who curse you. Pray. Pray for those 
who abuse you. And in Matthew 5.44, love, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One way you can bless people is to pray for them. In other words, you speak to God on their behalf. Lord, have mercy on this guy. He just does not see how consumed he is with darkness and sin. And if he continues on this path, his destiny is an eternal condemnation. God, open his eyes. Help me, Lord to speak to this person. So you can bless people by speaking to God on their behalf. You think of the words of our Lord Jesus, even as they were putting nails through his wrists. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was returning blessing, you see, for cursing. How do we bless? We speak to God on their behalf. Secondly, how do we bless? Well, we overcome evil with good. That is, we love our enemies. In other words, we return a loving action, something <clears throat> that's not retribution, but it involves some sort of action. You know, when Jesus spoke of, of, of somebody coming and asking for your cloak, he said, give them the other one too, you know. Walk that extra mile with them. Don't return evil for evil but do some kind of loving deed that'll just catch them off guard. What are they expecting? They're expecting, you know, they're expecting what they see in the world. But why would you respond in that way, you know? It's interesting. I remember counseling a couple, oh boy, almost two decades ago, no longer members of our church, and, and they were coming in for counsel because as a couple, they were tearing at each other, and one of the reasons they were tearing at each other is because they had a neighbor who was being a tremendous you know, nuisance and a, a great trouble, and they couldn't agree on how to respond to this nuisance, this, this trouble. This guy was, you know... Th- was that kind of neighbor, you know the neighbor I'm talking about, that kind of neighbor, you know, trims all your trees because the branches are one inch over the fence line, you know. He's, and in their case, also that kind of neighbor, what, that had moved the fence line a few inches over, you know, onto your land. And, and this couple was tearing at each other because they couldn't agree how to respond. And one of them, one of them in, the, in, the, in the marriage wanted him to get what he's got coming to him. You know? Then we looked at these verses. And I got the you got to be kidding face. You know, you got to be kidding. It's like, no, I'm not. It's this, this is the, this is the product of a new life. Do you have it? Can you pray to God, God, give me wisdom on how to return love for this stuff? That's your path. Now, you guys get together and pray about it. Work this out. But I tell you what option is not yours, and that is him getting his, you getting revenge, you know. So they had to work through that. It's tough stuff, you know. But the last way you can bless, and I like to really emphasize this, is because blessing involves speaking well to someone, right? There are times when you bless people, not by saying some sort of phrase, you know, saying, God bless you and walk away, you know. And what you're doing is, okay, I fulfill scripture, you know. That's it. I'm done with that. Thank God. (laughs) No. You bless people with words by carefully, respectfully, lovingly speaking the truth about their condition and why they are where they are in life, and why this thing is turning into a conflict. Because the greatest blessing you can give to someone 
is to help them by God's grace to see themselves through the lens of the truth. To see themselves as someone who is under sin, in darkness, and needs the light of God's grace and mercy. That's the greatest blessing you can give. And so one way to bless is to react in that way. I'll give you an example from Scripture that just really stood out in my mind and heart this week, and it's, you don't need to turn there, I'll read it for you, but it, it comes from the story of young David, who's been anointed to be king, but Saul is still king, and, and Saul is envious of all this, and Saul is pursuing him, and Saul wants to kill David, so young David needs to run for his life with some of his friends, and they go up into the mountains, and they hide inside of a cave, and lo and behold, who comes along but Saul and 3,000 men, he's trying to kill David, and he ends up walking into that cave to relieve himself all alone. Remember the story? In 1 Samuel 24, I'll read from it. He walked in there, into the cave, and it says, Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, you could see him getting down on their knees and whispering to David, saying, This is it. <laughs> Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. I'll tell you what seems good to me, David. <laughs> Cut off his head. <laughs> and then David arose, and what he did is he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. You can imagine Saul took off his robe to, to relieve himself, and, and David cuts a little corner off and sneaks back, and, and he comes back to his men, and he says to them, Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. And it says here, his heart struck him. Even just that. Even just cutting off the corner of the, king's, of the king's robe, it says his heart was struck because he had done this and he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord. Honor all, says Peter. Sarah said to Abraham, my Lord. He, honor all, my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. Again, respect, honor all. And so David persuaded his men. The idea is he had to convince them. <laughs> he persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up, you know, put on his robe, and he left the cave. And then as the story goes, David, when Saul gets down from the mountain, David goes up above, comes out, and then he calls out to him. He says, Saul, my lord, the king, honor all. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Honor all. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen? Here comes the blessing. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he calls him father. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know, you may know and see. See, there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. See what you're doing. May the Lord judge 
between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And as the story goes, Saul hears all this, and he cries out back to David. He says, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he wept. He had been blessed because he saw his true heart. And he saw the truth about what's going on between David and him. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good whereas I repaid you evil. So that's a beautiful example of bless those who curse you. Bless them by helping them see their true condition, that God may awaken them to their need for the grace that comes through Jesus. This is an example of exactly what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 12 when he says you heap burning coals on someone's head when you do that. Uh, what is Paul getting at? Well, listen to what he says. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Think about it first. That's what David did. Think. Don't just react. Think about it. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live, live peaceably with all. It doesn't always depend on you. You can't heal every breach, but whatever's possible, you try to make peace. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it, leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil. Evil wants to swallow you up and make you be revengeful. Do not be overcome by that evil that's in that person. You overcome evil with good. Because evil's pressing into your heart. It already has that heart that it's trying to press into yours. But when you return love and, and, and a blessing for a curse, you, put, you heap burning coals on someone's head. You say, well, what is that? What does that mean? Well, what would you do if somebody put a bunch of hot coals on your head? It's an alarm, right? It's like, get this off of me. What's going on? It's an alarm. Wake up. Wake up. Do you see what you're doing? Do you see who you truly are? And Saul saw himself. Saul saw the truth about his hard heart and his maliciousness, his envy. And he wept. And he wept when he saw who he truly was. That's a blessing, man. It's a blessing when God's word comes to you like that. And it comes through a loving brother or sister who helps you see the light. But we also are to help our enemies understand, you see, where they stand if they do not repent of what they're doing. Again, you say, boy, that's a, <laughs> that's, a, that's something else. That's a high and lofty ethic. Absolutely, it's a supernatural ethic. <laughs> this is not about you becoming a little bit of a nicer person. This is about you being a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. This is about you having a new life within you. This is about you being dead to sin and alive to God. You see, this is transformation. That's what this is. And so, yes, it's a, it's a high and lofty ethic. But God's grace has sustained many throughout the history of the church to this level, to love to this capacity. Recently celebrated what was the 50th anniversary of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and others going down uh, 
uh, into the South America to evangelize the Alka Indians. And, and there they did not retaliate and were killed and murdered. And their family members did not retaliate. And all of that got the attention of these Indians because they had burning coals heaped on their heads. And so that's what we're called for, beloved. But this is a supernatural walking with Christ. Paul says, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. Let this drive you back, you see. That verses like these are designed not to, to cause you to feel despondent. They're not designed to, 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 for you to beat yourself up. What are verses like this designed to do? They're designed to drive you right back to the empowering love of God which has been poured out in your heart through the Holy Spirit to seek His everlasting grace, you see. And to say, Lord, I can't do it. I need you to help me. So seek Him, beloved. Let's aim for this. Why should we? Because of what he says next. He says, for, for, to this you have been called, that you might receive a blessing. That's interesting. To this you've been called, that you might receive a blessing. Peter's used this word called many times in his letter. He's speaking to that effectual call of God to bring someone out of blindness to sight and out of sin to truth and so forth. But he often uses the verb called to, to point out that you've been called to do something. Called to something in your salvation. For example, in chapter 1, verse 15, we've been called to be holy. In chapter 2, verse 10, called out of darkness to do what? Proclaim His excellencies. In chapter 2, verse 20, called to do what? To suffer unjustly, to follow the steps of Christ, you see. And here, what he's saying, Christian, to you this morning, Christian, what he's saying to you today is that you've been called. You have been called to bless those who curse you that you might obtain a blessing. Now, don't, th don't think that that is some sort of meriting, uh, meriting or earning. The word obtain there is inherit, that you might inherit blessing from God, you see. An inheritance is not a reward. It's not a paycheck. It's, it's not something you earned. Uh, an inheritance we saw in chapter one is what? It is a gift, and we have a great inheritance awaiting us in heaven, and we receive that inheritance not because we bless those who curse us, but not without blessing those who curse us. Why? Because that's what people on the way to heaven look like. <laughs> so make you're calling an election all the more sure, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. By seeking to live like this, and know what you'll find? You'll find that God is with you. He will give you the grace by the power of His Spirit. And then he supports what he says. He supports it by uh, quoting from Psalm 34. He makes some minor alterations so that he could speak to them and apply it to them directly in verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12, citing Psalm 34. And perhaps the most important word of this citation really is the way he begins with the word for that he has placed there. For. What do I mean? Listen, listen to the end of verse 9 in its relationship to verse 10. Bless, Christian, bless those who curse you. Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for... For, because, why do I say this? Because whoever desires to love life and see good days, he's quoting Psalm 34 now, 
And when, when David wrote Psalm 34, he was talking about life in this world and good days in, this, in the kingdom of God. But Peter's use of this extends it to what? The inheritance in heaven. You, this is what godly people, righteous people should desire. Good life, good days, the inheritance of heaven. Whoever desires that, he says in verse 10, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This is what the righteous do. Not that they may be loved, not that they may be forgiven, but because they are loved and forgiven and they have the spirit of Christ indwelling in them. And so he quotes from Psalm 34 and applies it to them directly, you see. And this is necessary, beloved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said to them, Do you not know, in verse 10, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? But who inherits the kingdom? The righteous, who don't speak evil, who repent, they turn from evil, who seek peace and pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers, said Jesus, for they and they alone shall be called the sons of God. And so this is characteristic of us, but we need to pursue it. Not just seek and desire peace, but to pursue it, press after it. If there's a broken relationship in your life today, I can say it's not enough to feel you need to pursue making peace. And as far as it all depends on you, be at peace with all people, whether or not you can heal that breach. And then in verse 12, he describes what God does. So what does God do? For the righteous, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And we talked about this last week in relation to the prayers of the husband who, who wants God to hear his prayers, but he wants to abuse and mistreat his wife. And what this is the broader principle that shows there's a connection. Is you don't expect God to just run to answer your prayers when you are actively hiding and concealing sin in your heart and practicing unrighteousness. It's just a general truth, okay? It doesn't cut you off from God. But if you want him to hear your prayers, pursue peace. Seek, turn from evil, and so forth. And his, his ears are open to the righteous, and his eyes are on them as well. But the face of the Lord is against, is against those who do evil, those who live in this life of darkness and practice evil. You know, Peter uses the word evil in these short verses from 8 through 12. He uses the word evil five times times evil 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 he wants to make sure we understand to that there's such a thing as evil it's desires to master you it is coming at you because you're a christian in this world but you must not respond in like manner you must turn from evil pursue peace that's what he says so what is he telling us? Verses 8 through 12. Living as God's people in a heated environment, a hostile culture like it's getting for you and me, it calls for 
these spiritual qualities epitomized and capped off by love. These spiritual qualities and virtues in our interrelationships here in the church. That's what it calls for. And it calls for the capacity of not responding to the world, be it at your job, be it wherever it is, not responding in like manner, but being able to bless instead of cursing. Again, hearing stuff like this stiffens some of you up. I can see your shoulders are tight, some of you. (laughs) Like, you're still wrestling with the, you've got to be kidding. (laughs) You don't know my situation. I don't. The Lord does. You say, who can live like this? There's only one who lived like this every day of his life, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did was he sought peace. In fact, he pursued peace and made peace between a holy living God and sinners like you and me. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, having reconciled us to himself and to the Father, he has now made us his hands, his feet, his mouth. We are the peacemakers in the name of Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they and they alone shall be called the sons of God. Beloved, there's a lot of things that get in the way. A lot of things that undercut, that eat away at our capacity, your capacity to love people as Jesus is calling us to love them. Things such as pride, bitterness, and shame. Pride makes you look down on people. You still think you're better than others. Your opinion is the better one. It's hard for you to show compassion to people you hold in scorn. Bitterness. Bitterness. You were overlooked. You weren't thanked. Nobody called you. Uh, nobody asked forgiveness, so forth, and you are, you are just nursing that bitterness, and that keeps you what? Keeps you at a distance. It's hard to draw near to people whom you are just embittered against. And the last one is shame. Shame. Shame comes up when you know in your heart of hearts, you know in your heart of hearts that the sin that you criticize people for are the very sins that you cherish in your own heart. And so you stay away. You stay away and you don't draw near because of the shame that keeps you from it. Pride, bitterness, shame. So how are we delivered from this? We're delivered from this by finding our self-image again solely in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's seeing ourselves as those in Christ that I might relate to others as Christ. And so we go back again that all this flows from chapter 2. Yes, indeed, he suffered for our sins. By his wounds you are healed, you see. What changes your attitude towards others is this gospel-shaped self-image. When you realize, when you realize again and can say that you were an enemy of God, that's what Scripture says about you, Christian. When you realize again that you were an enemy of God and that God could have punished you and God should punish you, but instead God sent His holy beloved Son into this world and punished Him in your stead. 
and that he endured what you should be punished for, which is what? The wrath of Almighty God, condemnation. When you come to the point where you see that in a new and a fresh way, and you can say, I am a sinner saved by grace and grace alone. You can begin to stop looking down on others and have humility of heart and heal bitternesses and see your desire for vengeance go away. Because at the cross, we see two major things. We see both our unworthiness. That's what Saul saw when he saw his sin and our worth. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And it's those things that start clearing up the fog in your head. And so I have two closing questions for you. Two closing questions of application here. How do you see the body of Christ, beloved? How do you see the church? Is it a brotherhood that you love? How you're responding to the church? Or is it, is it more of a club you belong to? Is the church more like Costco? You know, you walk in, show your card, I belong. I've been a member here five years. And then, and then once you get in, you get what you came to get for. And then, and then you get out, and then you fight with somebody in the parking lot. You know, Costco. Right? That's... You all laugh because you know what I'm talking about. Is that how you view the fellowship of the saints, the brotherhood, you see? Or is it sympathy and compassion, getting that shoulder underneath, you know? And I said this first hour, I'll repeat it. I say this lovingly and with total respect for all of you and, and those that are listening who are not present here. There just absolutely is no way. It's impossible, utterly impossible to fulfill what Peter says and Paul says when he writes about brotherly love. It's impossible to fulfill those things in isolation. You cannot do it. And so what do you do? You do Psalm 34, what? You turn from evil. You turn from your self-centeredness. And you start doing good. And you start loving others. So what's your relationship to the church? And again, how are you responding to the world? How are you responding to those who curse you? By the grace of God, the Lord Jesus walks with us, empowers us, and leads us in his righteous paths. He's the good shepherd. Amen. Turn to him. Let's pray. Bring our gifts and sing a song of praise. Our Father, turn us to